Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. In this very special episode, we were honored to have the company of the charming and inimitable poet Taisia Kataiskaya. Taya is a Russian-American poet and writer and a dear friend. In this interview, we discuss her forthcoming book of poems titled The Nightgown and Other Poems, which will be published by Deep Vellum later this month. Taya is also the author of Literary Witches, a collaboration with artist Katie Haran celebrating magical women writers, a divination deck called The Literary Witches Oracle, and two books of experimental advice from a witch of Slavic folklore, Ask Baba Yaga Otherworldly Advice for Everyday Troubles, and its forthcoming sequent, Poetic Remedies for Troubled Times from Ask Baba Yaga. We hope you check out all of Taya's books and that you enjoy this conversation among friends. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast, Taya. We are so ecstatic to have you with us today, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Nar. I'm so delighted to talk to you, not only because you're two of my fave people, um, but also because I don't get to talk to anyone anymore. So, (laughs) (laughs) Taya, I feel like your work and your words and your essence and your aura is really well built for never leaving your home and being in quarantine like are you thriving do you love not seeing anyone (laughs) thank you for noticing that I do love to be at home um I think at the beginning of the pandemic I was thriving and then it sort of took a dip you know my dog died and then the summer came and it was so hot and like I couldn't go outside anymore as often and then you know it was just a brutal summer I feel like for most people And then now that I feel the fall coming on and I have these two books coming out, which is cheering, you know, I feel, I feel more excited and I feel really happy to be home again. Yeah. R.I.P. Little Max. Oh, I know. I'm sitting right next to his, his old bed. We don't have the heart to move it yet. I understand. He was beloved by so many people in Austin, especially in the literary community. Yeah. So his... His absence is felt, but I have to say we always do a little weather segment at the top. (laughs) Perfect. And what happened? It's so incredible when you get through the nastiness of August, you could actually feel the difference this year as opposed to other years. And I just have been delighted by it. I love all the nasty rain. It's so great. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I love the rain. I love how it smells these days. I love that it's been in the 80s. Um, It's been transporting me to other autumns of my youth. Yeah. I want to hear so much about the autumns of your youth. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe start there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's begin where we always begin, in the the autumns of my youth. Okay, so for those who don't know, Taya immigrated to the United States. From Russia at the age of five. My family's from Siberia. If I'm being honest, I don't know that much about the landscape of Siberia, Russia, and the Ukraine. Okay, a lot of people don't know this about Siberia. Siberia is huge, and it comprises most of Russia. 
is everything east of the Ural Mountains. So like, you know, all the places people know, like Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, they're all crammed into like, I would say a fourth of Russia, which is the western side. And that's the side that got like more um, Euro, you know? Yeah. With Peter the Great and, you know, the, then all the aristocracy were speaking French, Anna Karenina, et cetera. Um, <laughs> Russia is so interesting because it is partially in Europe and partially in Asia. Yeah. And it's vast. It is a completely wild place. Yeah, totally. And Siberia, um, you know, because it's most of Russia, um, it's less remote than maybe it sounds. Mm. But my family is from uh, a place near Lake Baikal, which is one of the oldest and deepest lakes in the world, um, called Irkutsk. And that's like a pretty big city, hmm. just a little north of Mongolia. Wow, I did not know that. That's very cool. I assumed you were from Siberia because, I mean, your family is in Alaska. So I was like, cold, move to cold. Like, that was a very soft science leap from my brain. <laughs> you did it. Yeah, my parents love um, Alaska because it feels like home. Yeah, only soft science for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what were the autumns like in Siberia? I have, you know, limited memories. Um, and my strongest memories are of the winter and of the summers um, because we would go to my family's summer house, um, which is called the Dacia, and spend the summers there in like a cabin by, by Lake Baikal. So we'd go like swim in the lake, which is, you know, a very fascinating lake. Mm -hmm. It has like centuries and centuries of like shipwrecks in it because it's kind of like a little sea. Right. And it has an endemic species of freshwater seal. Um, so, you know, seals don't normally live in freshwater. But, yeah, it's a lot of magical creatures that live in there. And I could tell, even as a little kid. Especially as a little kid, I would think. Yeah, when yeah. you're so connected to that magic. Right. It seems like the creatures would be especially special there to be able to survive such harsh climbs. So really only very specific kinds of things can, can survive, right? Yeah. You know, it's like the further north you go, the fewer species there are, but they're very distinct and interesting. Yeah. I know you have limited memories from Siberia, but how, how do you think that kind of landscape makes its way into your poems or does it? I think it does. You know, I wrote the poems in the nightgown. I wrote them a while ago, most of them. Mm -hmm. So reading them again um, and trying to familiarize myself with the book, it's easier for me to have kind of general impressions on what goes on in there. And it really feels like just being in the woods. I don't know if this it feels that way to you, but it feels to me just like wandering around the, in the woods and meeting like different creatures and different beings yeah. who all have kind of solitary lives in the woods. And I think that is grounded in, you know, being in a very boreal place, you know, for my formative years and then later on uh, returning to that in um, later childhood. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the forest is a very prime location for fairy tale. That's like the fairy tale location in my mind. So that really makes sense because in The Nightgown and other poems forthcoming from Deep Vellum, fairy tale is a huge element in this book. Fairy tale also being exchanged for folklore or myth. I think they're interchangeable, but that to me is like a driving force. And I feel like the woods is just a prime location for that. Yeah. Um, what do you think exactly 
is fairy tale like about this because that's my dad i just sent my dad and my mom this this book and they were like mm-hmm. my dad was like everyone says fairy tales in the blurbs why why is it fairy tales and i was like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of like elemental imagery in here that i feel like is actually missing from a lot of contemporary poetry and maybe makes this feel more fairy tale like than other contemporary poems uh there's like kind of these archetypal characters Mm -hmm. there's a couple poems that talk about specific fairy tales like thumbelina and then this russian fairy tale kroshichka havroshichka um but i don't know that i had a great answer for him yeah i was gonna say that you're kind of keyed in with the mention of folklore in the first poem that's like Mm -hmm. already opening up that sort of world And then I agree there's the specific references to Western and Slavic fairy tales. But I would say that the idea of character in each poem is what resonates with me. And I am by no means, I haven't studied fairy tales, so I can't can't speak to any like specifics. But the way that the characters are archetypal in a way, but they even go beyond that. They're almost more fairy tale-ish than fairy tales to me because the archetypes aren't reduced down to like stagnant definitions. They're very explosive and go so far beyond any kind of archetype that actually exists in our minds. So to me, it's like an interplay between drawing from actual fairy tale and then exploring that idea even further, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're just full of magic. And and the if you can call it a cause and effect relationship between what happens or is caused to happen in the poems with characters, that has a fairy tale like feeling to me because it's unexpected often. Always? <laughs> I would say maybe always. <laughs> like uh, like big leaps, right? And like transformations. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll tell my dad. Yeah. Let him know. <laughs> I also want to add, I mean, we're going to have to talk about this cover at some point. Yeah. Um, the cover right off the bat reminded me of the frog with the gems in Pan's Labyrinth, which is like a Brothers Grimm, Guillermo del Toro, mm. just like dark fairy tale takes place in a forest and swampy, I think it's Spain, during a war. And so already I I dove in with that. And then your work just kind of, these poems just kind of feed that imagery. Um, Nothing's green. It's dark green and brown. And you just feel kind of sweaty (laughs) reading these. (laughs) I just feel kind of sweaty reading these. But um, another thing that this reminded me of is like growing up I had these collections these like encyclopedias of fairy tales and nursery rhymes um so something about this feels very childlike but like dark like naughty like I'm not supposed to be reading (laughs) the real Brothers Grimm I'm supposed to be reading the Disney version but yeah in the 90s you got an encyclopedia of original (laughs) nursery rhymes and original fairy tale and folklore stories which were like really dark. I remember fingers being cut off and like eyes like being plucked. Um, so I feel like even if you or your dad don't consider these fairy tales, they very much smell the same. Mm. It's a very rich world that is surreal and unlike anything else that's coming through the desk. 
Oh, yeah, I have to agree. This, um, in a way, this doesn't remind me of anything. Is that okay to say? (laughs) It really doesn't remind me of anything that I've read before. I love that. That's, to me, part of this sense of magic in this language. And going back to the idea of the unexpected, there is no line in which I, as a reader, am comfortable or can safely say, I think I know what word is going to come next. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I think on a language level, there's an adventurous quality to reading poems that puts you in the mindset of like an adventurous epic um, without needing the tedious plot. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and then he he got a sword and he pulled it out. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I think that's the highest compliment is that it doesn't feel like things you've read because I do think the job of poetry or at least the poetry that I'm interested in writing um, is to create slash discover worlds that no one's seen before. And maybe that's the myth making that can be seen in it. You know, when I'm when I'm writing these, um, I just try to not know what's going to happen next. That's when I'm excited. Mm-hmm. And that's when I feel alive writing them. Um, and that's my goal is just to make something that is alive and that is its own creature. Like, I want each poem to be a toad that's like you see it and then it jumps away and then you have to follow it. And then in the end, it eludes you altogether. You never see the toad again and you don't ever understand the toad. (laughs) Speaking of toads, I just have to say we're obviously going to post a picture of this toad Mm -hmm. um, along with the episode information on our Instagram. But also something nothing like I've ever seen before in my life. Uh, we've talked before about how sensual this toad is, this Ugh. beautiful blue rolly toad. <laughs> <laughs> I know you collaborated um, with your friend Emma, who is an artist, to get this cover art. How did, how did you guys decide on the cover image for this book? Because I feel like, especially in terms of creatures, it could have been so many things. That's true. I think there are a lot of creatures in this book. Um, yeah, the cover was painted and designed by Emma Steinkraus, who is a, a fine visual artist and one of my oldest and closest friends. So it was such a treat for her to paint this and design it and do such an amazing job. Um, you know, she hand lettered the the font. Wow. And it looks amazing. It she made it look kind of medievally, but also sort of like rancid and upset. You know, and only she she understands me. <laughs> enough to do that for me she's so wonderful and she really spent like speaking of autumns she spent like a whole autumn painting this and putting it together just like such an act of love mm-hmm. um but you know she came up with the idea for the the central image so it's a toad with a really long tongue that's winding its way through the letters of the title and um there's a couple of jewels on the toad's tongue and that's a reference to the thumbelina poem where it says, Thumbelina is a racehorse, muddy, bloody, rolling in and out on the toad's tongue, a joy diamond for the choking. Hmm. Um, so that's where the, the image comes from. I love that. And I love jewels. I don't know if you'd agree. I think it's like a very maximalist aesthetic in the poems and yes. like a lot of luxury, which I love. I'm currently wearing a heavy rose necklace for a zoom call so you know I try to live what I write yeah for (laughs) sure (laughs) you've got your jewels yes and your 
almost said rancidness. That's that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what I've become in quarantines. Oh, we all know because we're all that. Yeah, we're all just like toads in our own separate homes. I just love this table of contents. I'm gonna read a, a couple of my favorite poem titles. Is that okay? Yes, please. The Hurt Opera. Hour of Monks. Eunuch. Lady Butter. Rabbit Catcher of My Moods. Because I Am a Thick Broad. Poverty Bucket. Those are some of my favorite titles. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, before we leave the cover, because I just, it brings me such joy to look at it. Um, and it really does feel like it was a gift made for me. Um, can we talk about how many folds this toad has? Let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> I feel like I saw a draft of this when Emma was working on it that fall. Mm -hmm. There were fewer folds. So <laughs> this was a choice. <laughs> it was a choice. It reminds me of like a chubby baby. And you're just like, <laughs> you just want to bite the chubbiness. Yeah. It's also intimidating, though. Those eyes are kind of boring into my soul. Definitely. Yeah, it's as, like, erotic and beckoning as it is foreboding. I love, the, like, the glistening of its scales, um, that it makes it look like those are precious stones in their own. Um, like, someone would climb up the back <laughs> of this toad and chisel a scale and then take it back to a market and sell it for, like, 10 bags of rice. And then that person would be cursed and like die a horrible death because they took a scale off the magical toad. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get the feeling that this toad doesn't have to go anywhere. Yes. And, you know, things are brought to the toad. Jewels, you know, macaroons, goblets of wine. It is so rotund that it almost looks like it's arms and legs. Or are they just all legs on a toad? I'm not sure. Uh, might be useless. They might just be accessory. Does this toad have a name? No, I do think of the toad as a she. Um, but I don't know her name. Um, can I ask you something, Anar? Can you say more about feeling sweaty? Just clammy. Like... For instance, Claire and I moved some of the host things into the office the other day, and I'm a person when the whole outfit's put on, it stays on. Mm -hmm. And I wore like a rain jacket, and it was very humid. And so it was that feeling of like, you're a little overdressed, but your work has this like, this, if I were to describe the temperature, I would say it's humid. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> These are definitely humid poems to me, but there's also, like you said before, you don't ever really know where you're going in these poems, um, and there's like an uneasiness to it, and you're just like, should I take this next step to this next line? Where are you taking me? So there's definitely this like marching through a forest and a cave and like uneasy of what you're going to find or what's going to find you kind of element. Um, I read these sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's so nice. Um, speaking of your outfits, I just want to take a moment to tell your listeners who may not know 
that Anar and Claire are very handsome individuals oh. <laughs> who are very well dressed and and radiant of skin and hair. Thank you, Taya. I just I just think it's worth saying because sometimes people don't know because they just hear your voice and your your mind. So true. But there's more to you. It's not just your mind. I am I am only looks. <laughs> Oh exactly. I guess describing myself as sweating through these poems did create an imagery to our listeners that I am very <laughs> disgusting. Or just like very sensual, you know? Yeah, like the toad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the poems are very sensual. I wouldn't say they're the kinds of poems that primarily exist in the body. I think that the lines are very blurred for me when, when I'm in the mind, the spirit, or the body in these poems, mm. but they are very visceral. And to me, that lends them a kind of sweaty quality as well, because a lot of the times what's being viscerally experienced is kind of sensual in a dirty way, um, just in a kind of gluttonous way. Yeah. Like a kind of gluttony that extends to all types of experiences, not just sex or food spiritual experience ecstatic experience right there's this kind of gluttony for the world that feels kind of sweaty to me too <laughs> yeah um i'm reading a book that reminds me of what you said called lot um by shola von reinhold um this is a uk scottish british author and i don't think it's out in america i ordered it special from the uk but it's about an archivist who discovers a forgotten black poet from the 20s and who hung out with the bloomsbury group and all the decadent and hedonistic people of that time and it was like very beautiful and extravagant herself and the book is sort of about uh, matilda the narrator her journey to try to figure out who this person is she's kind of glutting herself on anything she can find and on her imaginations of this figure. Mm. Um, and she goes into what she calls a transfiction where she's kind of like half dreaming of like these figures of obsession that she has, like this decadent Hermia, um, the forgotten poet. And I just, you know, I didn't know really anything about it when I got it, except that it's about sort of a book on the archive and like, you know, queer history and blackness and decadence. Mm. And I'm just, I'm so into it. I really feel like a kindred spirit with this journey into luxury, a certain kind of spiritual and bodily luxury. And I think, you know, the book is extra special because it sort of asks the question of like, you know, how can marginalized people access luxury when it's been the purview of the aristocracy mm -hmm. yeah I just I, I feel so close to to that idea of like just burrowing deeper into beauty and extravagance yeah and it's not an aristocratic <laughs> extravagance or decadence mm -hmm. it's a very animalistic one you know it's like um the cake is being eaten with our hands always <laughs> There's, you know, whatever we're enjoying is getting under our fingernails. Mm -hmm. And it's all the more decadent because of that, because there isn't a, a kind of properness to it. Right. I don't know who has good manners in this book. I think there's a few people, but those people are usually perverse. Right. Like the people who have good manners are creepy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you read us a poem, Taya? Sure. I'll start with one that I've never really read, I think. Um, and I chose it for y'all because it's fun. And it's called I Visit My Oracle. By me, I mean the thousand-eyed beast 
lacquered, tumored, and nailed. Shapely. By woods, I mean arachnoids, lecherous, starved, transparent. By her, I mean big as a moon, Miss Morridge, eyes resting in the usual milk, dusty brained so that I must wipe it, so that she may aspire for me a word into the glass goblet. Stir it, gelatinous, into a meaning. Tenders, governs, she does, says I am too hasty to make a herd of languages. Decease, she says, into a pot, and they drop and mule. How conscious, she says, muttering, too conscious. It's all too much for her. She slides back into her slipper, crunches insects eyelessly in a tavern. I go home galoshed, stank all up my being. Far from oracled, my hair specks a minx. When at wood's edge, I trip over a loosed burl of a word. How did she trap me so, cobwebbed as she is? And moment, feel me step through myself. But that's a lie. And the trees snicker like they never knew me. That's great. I love that last line so much. <laughs> you know, reading through this book, I just, I like felt charmed by uh, Miss Moridge, the oracle, mm-hmm. and how she's all like cobwebbed and confused and sort of irritable. She seems kind of irritable to be woken up from whatever <laughs> weird <laughs> world she lives in. And by the the curiosity of the speaker, who is looking for like magical solutions to create a herd of languages to sort of like populate her her landscape with with language and and poetry maybe. Yeah, I love a herd of languages. Um, I love that as kind of the goal of the poem, and and it's also sort of looking to stir something into a meaning. And it seems like that's what the speaker is visiting the oracle for Mm -hmm. but the oracle does not seem very helpful no (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then at the end when the speaker thinks you know she's not getting anything out of this creature she trips over a loosed word in the woods and she ends up being trapped and also kind of getting what she wanted in a way like she ends up having a surprising encounter with language Mm -hmm. and then the trees make fun of her (laughs) I love it. Sometimes trees are petty and mean. I mean, to me, that last line is like a very fantasy fairy tale kind of line, right? It's not even about the other stuff that happens in the poem, but it's almost like the trees are not only conscious, they're known to the character in this poem or the characters in this poem. Mm -hmm. And they're also like just kind of living a life of their own. They're not necessarily involved in all of this, but they're observing it. (laughs) Yeah, they've got opinions. They've got opinions about it. This might derail us just a little, but 
I'm sure everyone has had their hippy-dippy moments in life where you're like, I am one with nature and I am these trees and you become part of the landscape and feel connected to it and that the tree snickering like they never knew me felt like it took me back to trees that I thought I had an intimate relationship with and I was like they would just laugh at me (laughs) maybe they've been laughing all this time oh for sure even though it definitely has levity there's this speaker that's like visiting an oracle and trying to make some kind of divination happen and there's this intense interaction that takes place through most of the poem Mm. but then that last line is basically like there's bigger things. There's other parts of this world and this universe that are happening around this and almost diverting the importance of, of that interaction yeah. and that discovery. And I like it. I, I love that because it doesn't have a serious quality to it that um, I think a lot of work that is trying to infuse itself with magic does, right? Like it's all about self betterment you know what I mean yeah the wellness industry (laughs) that doesn't belong in this poem um that's not the kind of oracle we're consulting here (laughs) yeah you can't like buy a 34 dollar glitter lotion to get you a herd of languages in this world right you know yeah (laughs) also have you ever seen someone like trip and you know you shouldn't laugh but you cannot help (laughs) but to laugh maniacally yeah who can blame them these trees <laughs> no they're they're totally correct <laughs> um you know I also realized another reason why I don't read this is because it has a lot of play with spelling mm-hmm. and presentation that probably gets lost like eyed thousand eyed beast is spelled with an I and then you know there's a few words that are capitalized in a, a weird way and dusty brained has an apostrophe yeah. I like the way you read that, though. Yeah, branded. I feel like you let us know that that apostrophe is there. Um, yeah, you would lose you would lose something, I think, by not getting to see this particular poem on the page. Mm-hmm. But there is also this really delicious diction, and Anar and I love poems and poets who really insist that we use a dictionary to to have the full experience of the work. Um, I don't know how to say it. Is it Haruspex? I say Haruspex. Haruspex. But I could be wrong. But words like that, mm. I think that makes it really delightful to hear read out loud. You know, you get the textural element of the language. Yeah, I like saying saying these words out loud. I try to pick juicy ones or just really textured yeah. numbers. Um, I make up some words in this book, but Haruspex is a real word. It's a person who um, divines with entrails. Oh, thank you, Taya, for knowing that I was Googling it just now. (laughs) My Harrisbix of Minks is such a sexy little snippet there. (laughs) And then somebody trips, (laughs) right? Like the uh, the physical element of this of this work is so fun because it won't settle down. For the most part, yeah. I think there are definitely poems in here that, that maybe ride particular experiences or emotions a little more fully, but it doesn't like to settle down in this poem. 
That's a good point. I feel like I'm I'm an impatient writer and person. I think that's part of the feeling of like trying to create something that's alive. Like something's always going to happen that you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know what the toad is going to do next. Um, I think there's also like this element of synchronicity to it, that kind of shifting quality where it's just like, well, these things are happening simultaneously mm-hmm. in the span of this stanza. We can't get comfortable in a chair yeah. in this stanza because there's too much happening. I think I was really, um, this guy is very much out of vogue, but I was really influenced by the writings of Robert Bly, like his criticism Yeah. when I was in high school. Like he has a book called News of the Universe and he talks about how poems should have, they should, they should be interacting with the whole universe all the time and that they should not just be bringing human news to you like news that's going on in your house or in society but like news from the rest of the world news from creatures and animals and then news from space um yeah and beyond and that I feel like that's core for me like I've just I imprinted on that and it reminds me of something else I took a figure drawing class um around that same time too and the instructor talked about how when you're drawing somebody, you have to keep your pencil moving all the time. You can't just focus on like a little area of their head or whatever. You need to keep your pen moving like all around. After you like work on their head, you have to go right down to the feet and you have to come back up and like do the shoulders. And, and um, he didn't say why, but I, I think I felt the truth of that. Like you're not really capturing something unless you're, unless you're trying to capture the whole thing, which because you can't be um, simultaneous means jumping from one thing to another like leaping was another um Robert Bly idea of like leaping poetry yeah leaping between the different um, modes of consciousness yeah and back to your drawing class I I think you're capturing movement in that kind of technique as well and to me that also translates here with that kind of simultaneity of like consciousness is is in a bunch of different bodies or entities at the same time in the poem that, that's why I, I guess I keep saying you can't sit down or settle down into a chair because there's so much movement happening. It's so dynamic. That's a really good analogy. I like that. Should I read another one? Is it too soon? I'd love to hear another one. Read to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm at the point of an interview where and this happened with Monica's interview where I'm just like watching Claire and our guest just like bounce back and forth in like awe. Um, <laughs> And I'm just, like, taking notes. (laughs) Okay, you little munchkins. I'm going to read the first poem, The Folklore. How much of a munchkin do you feel like on a scale of one to five, with one being, like, a corporate businessman and five being a munchkin? (laughs) I don't feel much like one, but maybe at heart. I'm a five. I am a munchkin. I mean... I just feel just so cute and grubby all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You are very cute. I don't know how grubby you are. I'm always so clammy. Um, I've learned about your clamminess, but I thought I instigated the clamminess. I didn't know you were clammy all the time. I'm just a nervous munchkin. Sometimes (laughs) more nervous than other times, but I was about to say, Claire, you are not a munchkin. You've got munchkin moments. Hashtag munchkin moments. Um, so... Munchkin icon, Dana DeVito. She is a munchkin I icon. I always text Claire gifs from Twins where Danny DeVito plays Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> twin. And I really feel like 
that is Claire and I. The image she sends me is Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger dressed in the same outfit, <laughs> strolling along together and at the same time tossing their jacket over their shoulders. And it's whenever mm-hmm. she and I do something that's the same. So instead of just texting me twins, she texts me that. And of course, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious who's who in this scenario. That's beautiful. That's perfect. I have another fun fact. There's a Russian Danny DeVito. There's like an exact what? Um, corollary. There's another actor in Russia who looks just like Danny DeVito and has like similar personality and similar like oh, type wow. that he plays in movies. He's so cute. He plays like a shabby king in a really fun kind of fairy tale inspired movie that is one of my favorite movies called A Book of the um, which means ordinary miracle. Anyway. That's amazing news, though, because the more Danny DeVito's cross-culturally we can have in the world, the better I feel about the state of things. I would love a conference of, like, Danny DeVito's from around the world. (laughs) The munchkins will rise. We are toppling all... We're toppling everything. All of it. Exactly. From the ground up, up, exactly. Because you're holding the world up from the ground and toppling it. (laughs) Such a great question, Taya. Yeah, thank you. It came from the heart. Okay, do you want to hear this poem? I would love to. Yes, please. Okay. The Folklore Shortly after crawling from the river, the folklore died of pernicious diseases. Died upside down in our wishing well, showing its bloomers. Someone spat on the folklore. Someone dipped the folklore like a candle in lye. Someone washed the folklore's corpse. Someone put the folklore under a sun lamp, but the folklore did not revive. When I next saw the folklore, it was filing papers in a basement office, trying to tip the vending machine over loving the salty and the sweet. I shook out all the snacks. Now I am the ugly wife of the folklore. We kiss our ugly faces together, clammy. We go out for ice cream. We love apples. We hold hands under the table. We eat peanuts, wipe grease on our skirts, get married over and over. We are tipsy in the hot afternoon, swaying along with the sunflowers. Once a year, the folklore rides away on a little pig. I weep in our manor. I shield my eyes with straw. Then the folklore comes back with beads, honeycombs, gigapets. We are in love again, knocking against each other, lurking in each other's dreams like sharks. We go to the Natural History Museum, disappear into the tanned cloaks of extinct peoples. We too are extinct and rolling down a hill, scooped by grass, 
how much longer can we go on living, dying, seeking the other in each inherited world? When you, the folklore, first swam towards me, you grabbed my ankles, you heaved yourself onto the banks, onto me. Dripping, we began. I love the way you read your poems, Taya. Thank you. I'm trying to enunciate more because hmm. I'm a mumbler. I've learned that. Anar, <laughs> you've been doing elocution lately too, right? Yes. The very first few podcasts we did, I was like, who is that? I was like, who is that munchkin? Um, why does it sound like someone's sitting on me? And so, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing these little elocution games on my phone oh is there an app for this i use elevate it's good to to remember to open your mouth as you speak it's so true though our mouths get lazy what i like about the way you were reading it taya is you seem to kind of say each word as an individual yeah if that makes sense like they each kind of get their own space which is really delightful, especially when there's so much going on mm -hmm. and so much to kind of mentally keep track of. It's really lovely to also get the, with the enunciation, to get the, again, like the textural quality of the language. Yeah. And this one's toned down from the other, the oracle poem, right? Like, it is. I'm not making up any words here or using, using words I found in the dictionary. Yeah. This is a later poem. I wrote... I visit my oracle when I was deep in my MFA. Um, Claire and I both went to the same program. And um, it really created like a dream world for me for three years that mm -hmm. I think that was really important. You know, I got to go very deep. And the folklore was written later after I, you know, started working and stuff. <laughs> you know, you, you have to like really kind of dwell in your dreamscape to start thinking about the hair specs. Hmm. I mean, who's to say what the right way is to put a book together, right? There's strategies, but I think it's a really lovely first poem because it doesn't ask us to read the word hair specs quite yet. It kind of lets mm -hmm. us read these fun, crunchy, Anglo-Saxon style one to two syllable words. Although we do have the word gigapets, which is pretty delightful and strange. But I do think it is a wonderful entryway into the world of these poems because it also almost like a thematic preface in a way to some of what's going to happen later. Like there's recurring characters. Someone's writing on the back of a pig in this poem. And as we know, those pigs come back. <laughs> those hogs are present in this manuscript. Uh, yeah. God bless them. And, and I really appreciate the idea of folklore being given to me, you know, just like, like, here's your walking stick. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're going to need this for this journey. <laughs> I think it's a really great poem to give us something to use to navigate. Yeah, um, I'm glad. I think, you know, I have a few poems like this where I take kind of an abstract concept or maybe in a figure that doesn't seem like it might have much personality, like a nightgown, and then they become their own character. So this is in the, the vein of those poems. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was um, reading this, I was thinking about how, 
you know, the folklore really, the idea of the folklore and folklore in general, like, does interesting things with time. Some of this feels really medieval, right? Like the manor and the little pig back when everyone was riding little pigs to the market. Um, but then there's also like the office and the vending machine and the gigapets. And I think what's dear about folklore and and these deep images of, you know, like archetypal figures and the symbolic images that are like built up in folklore is that they can keep you company through many lifetimes. And I think there's a sense maybe in this poem that, you know, we've always been together. You know, it's circular. The folklore and I, we will keep revisiting each other because in a way um, you don't die. Like you're always fresh because you get at something core. Um, Yeah. Feels so romantic. I mean, we're all, we're all married. We're all in love. (laughs) And there's always this like, as cheesy as it sounds, when you meet the one, you're like, yeah, we're here now. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. like, we're here now, but it feels like when we die, we're, we'll search for each other again. We just keep dying and and being reborn and finding each other is the, the journey. You guys get married again and again, over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the, it's the folklore and the speaker of the poems. Like, that's what's so wonderful about that, too. I also love how it's circular. The poem begins with the folklore crawling from the river, and then at the end, dripping, we began. So we just kind of go back into the river, or we come back out of it again at the end. Yes. It's really lovely. It does have this kind of eternal feel. You know what this smell of this poem reminded me of? <laughs> Is Taya. I'm sure you've seen it. Have you seen Orlando? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. That's the same smell. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same feel to me. Yeah. I haven't seen it. We'll have to watch Orlando. It's beautiful. This is so fun, you guys. This is fun. I like you. I like you both. Munchkin or no munchkin. <laughs> <laughs> Taya, I would like you to curate some book pairings for us for this book. Yeah. So. If you were going to pair something musical with this, either a song oh. or a band, mm. what would you pair with, with The Nightgown and other poems? I would perhaps pair Kate Bush intermixed with Dacha Bracha, the Ukrainian band. That's a really good combo. Any particular song from Kate Bush, just out of curiosity? Um, She's such a nutcase. Maybe Them Heavy People. <laughs> And, you know, Wuthering Heights, that's a classic. Um, oh, I love it. It's a perfect song. I put that song on and dance around my apartment. Who doesn't? <laughs> that's one of my quarantine behaviors. <laughs> it's a great quarantine behavior. Okay. What about a Bev pairing? What beverage? Um, well, it has to be in a goblet. Okay. So get your best goblet. I know you have several. Yes. Don't look at the bad ones. Look at the best one. Got it. Okay, and then you can have you can have wine in it. Um, or if you have a gold liqueur, mm. throw that in the mix. Okay. Bernard, if you have a pairing question, you can jump in. This is very stupid. It's <laughs> all I can think about. What shoes would you wear? <laughs> That's oh. Stupid. That's awesome. That is awesome. Okay. 
You know the shoes that the Ah Real Monsters monster wears, the red high heels? Yes. Those shoes. Ah Real Monsters? Claire, get educated. You gotta watch Ah Real Monsters. Oh my god. Yeah, this was a 90s TV show about monsters. One of the monsters wears red high-heeled shoes. Four of them. Four, four shoes, that makes sense. The shoe pairing is four red high heels. I love it. Wear them wherever you want. You could put them on your arms and your legs. If your ears are accommodating, you could put two on your ears. I don't know what shape ears you have. My ears are very small and unseemly. Yep. <laughs> You've seen them. You've seen these ears. I have seen them. Yeah. They're, they're just unique, Taya. They're very unique to you. Thank you. They're the ears of a hedgehog, as my mother says. <laughs> She's so kind. She's so kind. <laughs> Indeed. I'm glad that answer wasn't slippers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love the idea of wearing like a nightgown that has like holes chewed through it. <laughs> Perfect. With your golden goblet of, of liqueur or wine. Yeah. And the Ah Real Monsters red high heels. That's a great combo. Listening to Kate Bush and or Daka Braha. That's a fun night in. This is something you can do at home during during these times. Like right. That. We just selfishly wanted you to curate an experience for us to have while reading these poems. See, these are munchkin tips. Hashtag munchkin tips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the kinds of snacks you've been having in your quarantines. I have a lot of nice chocolates that I get from a primitive website called chocosphere.com i would genuinely be very nervous about putting in my credit card information it's from the 90s but they they ship their chocolates really fast and i got a nice chocolate with a lemur on it very artful drawing of a lemur and oh my gosh i had the best chocolate of all time recently from chocosphere.com which is um hedgehog in the fog chocolate which is based on my favorite russian animation of all time that's another thing i recommend this is on youtube yes is it called hedgehog in the fog it is and the the chocolate is too and it's white chocolate with bergamot and black pepper made by only child chocolate this website is (laughs) horrendous it's really bad it's hard to imagine anything luxury coming from chocosphere.com but I feel like there's a lesson in there. There is a lesson. A lesson that you're teaching all of us, Taya. Yeah, exactly. Oh, also, so I have a lot of new teas, mm-hmm. you know. I have my loose leaves. My milk oolong is always in rotation. But I've been drinking more black teas. And Harney and Sons has a little woman-themed tea that is delightful. Oh, that sounds fun. I still haven't seen the new one that came out, but I heard it was good. I just started watching yesterday. Fernando told me it was good. Yeah, Fernando went to see it with Corey Miller, another poet. Um, that's adorable. And so I also cute. love, side note, how much Fernando loves the Little Women franchise. <laughs> he loves Little Women. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very connected to them. Um, But I watched half of it, the new one, yesterday, and it was just such a joy. Yeah. You gotta watch it, Claire. And drink the tea. That's what we need right now, too. Oh, yes. We need joyous things. That's why we're so happy to have your book coming out this month. Aww. That will bring joy to a lot of people. I truly believe that. Thank you, Claire. When is the official launch date? 
for your book? September 22nd. And is there a, a virtual launch party we can link people to? There will be. I will be um, doing a talk with Literati, uh, independent bookstore in Michigan, um, on October 5th. And I will share details with you when I have them. But you can save the date. I'd love to see you there. It's going to be Zoom. Okay. We're going to save the date. Can't wait. And then the next day, October 6th, is when my other book comes wow. out. Ask Baba Yaga, number two. So... This one is titled Ask Baba Yaga um, Poetic Remedies for Troubled Times. Yes. Okay. What would you say would be the main distinguishing factor from the second one to the first one? Oh, love that cover. It's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, number one, it's blue. There we go. Uh, the first one, <laughs> yeah. Come in here for the, for the hot takes and the deep, the deep dives of the author. <laughs> The first one was notably red, and it was like all the illustrations were um, black and white and red, and all the beautiful illustrations by my collaborator from Literary Witches, Katie Haran, are um, black and blue, and that's kind of, I would say, that's more the feel of the book. The first one was really, I mean, it was still Baba Yaga, who's the Slavic witch Mm -hmm. of folklore. Um, It was still her advice, which is like, you know, irritable sometimes, and... um, kind of dark and dangerous but also funny and cryptic it's the same baba here but you know i think in the first book she was more teasing because you know it was the obama years Uh, and at least on the surface um things were easier for some people anyway mm -hmm. and now we need we need more solace and we need more of a gentle touch so i think she brings she brings more tenderness even though i wrote this book before a lot of the most recent painful things hit you know, I wrote it under Trump when I really wanted Baba's solace and her comfort and her otherworldly wisdom. Yeah, I love that. Her kind of, you know, because she exists in folklore, her timelessness, it feels like such a gift that she drops in to comment or, or lend a hand to what's going on with us right now. And that can either feel um, chastising, like... Mm-hmm. Hey, don't forget, there's this other thing, which is eternity. And so what's going on with you doesn't really matter. Or you need to just widen your perspective. Or it can be really comforting, that kind of timelessness of mm. don't forget that there's this is part of you too. Yeah. And I think there's a through line from that to the Oracle poem that I shared where like the trees have their own opinions on things. Um, I find refuge in other consciousnesses you know Mm -hmm. to get out of my own and I think about the trees what the trees are thinking and I feel better totally is is there gonna be a virtual event for the Baba book I'm planning some stuff I'm open to your ideas of what I could do like astral projection that's all I could bring to the table cannot say anything about it I was gonna Um, just give a pitch like you know astral project with us on October 5th via zoom (laughs) (laughs) so I'll think of something maybe I'll just say like Baba will haunt you in your dreams tonight that's perfect (laughs) and it's really low maintenance for you too (laughs) it's maybe higher maintenance for the recipients of that spell that's great I was just gonna say in terms of like referencing one more poem I love in the poem reader on page 36 these lines which read hooded reader your puzzlement is 
a brilliant net with which to catch many fishes. And I just felt like that was such a wonderful, if anybody out there needs a little hook for getting into these poems and kind of how these poems want to relate to us, I feel like that is such a great um, couple of lines. The poems want our puzzlement and they want us to recognize it as a net full of little shiny fishes, like little gemstones. Thanks, Claire. Yeah, there's two uh, reader poems. Mm-hmm. Um, one's halfway through, the one that you read from, and then one's the last poem. Um, and then there's also, I think, kind of midway through, there's a poem called Speak Plainly. And so there's a few shout outs to the reader who may get overwhelmed um, by the too muchness of these poems, which I recognize. So I try to like, yeah. you know, extend, extend a hand every once in a while and say like, we're all welcome here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and I love it that it's coming right out and telling the reader the way that this language wants to interact with our brains. Um, I think that's that's so wonderful. I mean, it's doing it in a very metaphorical way, and so it's still nice and open-ended. And what it's pointing to, if anything, is the unknown, right? The mystery. Um, but that's great information to have, I think. It's really um, tender, and I feel really brought in to the work by those poems. Should I read the second reader poem? It's a shorty. Yeah. Okay. Reader. You're eating yogurt. I'm an insect at your feet. You wipe your hands and peer. Part of you feels nothing. A lively part of you wants to crush my tiny intricacy. But I've got wings and dart. Catch me in your net and I'll admire your nose through the jar in your bedroom. We'll share the same nightmare in our sleep. And if I hear you calling somewhere, I'll come running. I'll forget all the ugly things we said. And we can wear this plague of hornets like a cape. March into town for a ham sandwich and be the shouting in the trees. The ham sandwich just really gets me. (laughs) You know, it's like, if you want to make peace, eat a ham sandwich together. (laughs) There's so much camaraderie in the ham sandwich. Yeah. It's a real extended hand from the poem. Yes. And I feel like, I always feel placated by a sandwich. Um, (laughs) I didn't realize until I read it that both of those reader poems have the net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very different net. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the the speaker of the poems is like an annoying insect of tiny intricacy. But also saying, it's okay for you to catch me and put me in a jar. I'll have fun looking up your nose <laughs> through the glass. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't get rid of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll always be here having a good time, no matter what you do, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> But then in the end, you know, we're friends and we wear the same cape and then we stop even being humans or insects and then we're just the shouting in the trees. There those trees are again at the end of a poem and I really feel like they're different in this poem, but who's to say if the shouting in the trees is coming from 
entities other than the trees, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of caught up in their branches. Um, But I do think that's another gesture toward infinitude or or whatever, right? There's so many words you could plug in right there. And kind of the point of it is that there isn't a word. And so that's why it's still so interesting for the poem to keep kind of turning that idea and looking at it from different, slightly different angles. Right. It's like, you know, the Buddhist idea of the separate self and how like that's what creates suffering and annoyance. And then once you break through that, then you're just sound or just a feeling together. It's all ham sandwiches after that, baby. (laughs) Exactly. Relax. Have a ham sandwich. (laughs) Oh, there is so much humor in these poems. My God. To have humor in poems that aren't being ironic, sarcastic, um, and if they're poking fun at anything, it's the triviality of humankind or themselves. Yes. It's really lovely and, and so fun to laugh along with. Taya, I can't remember who I told this to, and I'm sure this was a while ago, but um, I think you're one of the funniest people I've ever met. <gasps> oh my gosh, Anar, you know, way you... to my heart. <laughs> You are like, you're a comedian without having to be like a stand-up comedian. Um, Because I agree, your sense of humor is so just intelligent and well-curated, well-crafted. I agree. Um, It just is so good. I, I know a lot of your humor just through your illustrations, your comics through, through Instagram, um, and I cannot think of a funnier person. Um, I mean, you and I have both talked about Maria Bamford and mm-hmm. other comedians here and there, shows and comedy specials. But um, yeah, your humor really shines through in the most unexpected and delightful of ways. That is so sweet of you to say. I do love Maria Bamford so much. She's my comfort watch. Like when I'm in a dark place, like our car broke down for the third time in three weeks. I watch my Maria Bamford. I feel so much better. And she's great with words. You know, she talks about that. She loves words. And I think there's overlap between poetry and comedy that isn't maybe talked about enough. I think comedians really have Mm -hmm. to love language. I mean, there's some that don't and they don't speak to me as much. Um, But like comic timing is all wrapped up in language, too, you know, and in like the rhythm of sentences. And I watch a lot of comedy and I I feel like I get a lot out of it beyond just a good time. And harnessing the absurd, I think, is something that that good comedy, the kind of comedy I like does well and something that your work does well and harnessing it, not just being absurd. Right. But like using it in these particular ways so that it does catch you um, that comic timing, you know, really is effective with the absurdity. Absolutely. Yeah, I think being a comedian without having to stand in front of people and be sweaty and just be sweaty in the poems. <laughs> That's what I want. Thank you for articulating my my life's purpose for me over Zoom. What a treat. That's what we're here for. <sighs> I will say I have to give, you know, the the most major shout out to Deep Vellum for publishing this book you may know deep vellum as a publishing house out of dallas texas that has mostly focused on fiction and translation and will evans the editor you know the man behind the project is such a wonderful person just so full of energy his vision is huge and ever expanding and it's recently expanded to english language 
and poetry. And I was lucky to be one of the first poets writing in English that he's published. Um, and Sarah, his marketing director, is amazing too. You know, it's just such a pleasure to work with a small press like that because my other books have been published with larger presses and they've, you know, they've all done a lovely job and been nice to work with. But I really feel like Will and Sarah take so much pains to understand the project and to to really just like love it and, and love me. And I really feel like they're they're my poetry family, part of my big poetry family now. So um, I advise you, if you are curious, see what else they have going on, to go on their website. They have a very beautiful book by uh, Mike Soto called A Grave is Given Supper. And it has um, like medieval, it has woodcut imagery that are amazing like throughout. It's just a really beautifully put together book. And they put a lot of thought into their design. And he's another uh, local poet, Mike Soto. We will add that to our list of Taya recommendations that will will offer folks after the episode um deep vellum publishing out of dallas yes great shout out they are doing beautiful work people should definitely check out all the stuff that they're doing wonderful books and translation yeah i love will's vision for deep vellum and um he has a bookstore deep vellum books um they've been so supportive of the host titles we've sent their way and it just feels good to have publishing friends um in the state of Texas, because as we all know, there's so much really incredible talent just in Texas alone. Um, so it's good to have some presses to elevate these voices. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see what they put out next. I want to mention is the novel that they put out, Above Us, The Milky Way, and Illuminated Alphabet. Yes. I know that book came out right as the pandemic was starting to hit. Um, so if the folks at home want to check that out, um, this book for sure, I'm confident, has not gotten the love it deserves, um, as well as all of the other books being released this year. Definitely tell your friends about it and support our authors. That is such a great point, Anar. There's another forthcoming um, volume of poetry from Deep Vellum that is very special to me. Okay. Which is a book by Julie Poole, another local... Austin author, and it's called Bright Specimen, which is an amazing title. Yes. And it sort of has like Louise Glick, Wild Iris vibes because uh, Julie wrote it while visiting the herbarium at the University of Texas, way up in the tower. And she would go there like every day or something or every week and look at these dried flowers that were like decades old and write poems about them and kind of uh. from their voices. And they're delicate and so moving. I'm reading it right now. I love this book. I'm so excited. I think it's coming out in the spring. I cannot wait. Thank you for putting that on our radar. Um, I I knew that she had a book coming out, but I didn't know any of the details. And Julie Poole's aesthetic is, I think delicate is such a wonderful word for it. But it's also got this archival mm. quality to it, I think, where she's really carefully examining and cataloging things um, in the world. So that'll be a wonderful collection to, to have in our hands. Yeah. And it's like Julie, I think, and her poems, are they're delicate, but they're also tenacious. Um, there's like a hardiness to them along with their fragility. Like, like these tender little flowers, you know, made it uh, all this way to the herbarium. Even though they're desiccated, they're still like there and they're still talking. 
yeah, Julie's a very special person. I'm excited for everyone to meet her through her poetry. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're having that have had that experience with them because that's how it should be when you're being published by a small press. You know, you should have a really like personal relationship. Um, that's the fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, as you well know. As we know, yes. Yeah. And to that end, um, this year's Austin Mayor's Book Club is read local and so they kind of have this menu of all the books published by Austin authors in 2020 and The Nightgown is one of their books um, but there's a lot of other wonderful titles on there so if you go to the Library Foundation's website you can find out more. That's so great. Did you know that one of our books is on there as well? Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. We're buddies. We're buddies <laughs> and so I know they're doing workshops, poetry workshops, based on these books. So um, the one for The Nightgown is on October 29th. Ooh. And then what's the one for ice cream? The one for ice cream is going to be on October 8th. And we'll be featuring Claudia Delfina Cardona, who we actually are publishing her chapbook early October um, as well. So Oh, hooray. Well, that cover looks so good. Thank you. Anar did a great job. Yes, she did. I had vertigo for like eight weeks. <laughs> Do you have literal vertigo? Vertigo that was so bad that it made me question reality. Yeah, I'm, I mentioned the vertigo because I was trying to design this cover while only having like a few minutes of being able to stare at a screen at a time. So that was, that was a joy. It looks good though. It does. Everyone needs to really start penciling in these events for their literary calendars in October because this is going to be a really badass month for mm -hmm. our virtual literary parties that we're throwing for you guys. October 29th is such a delicious date for you to talk about the mm -hmm. nightgown. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. It's, it's so close to a pagan holiday. <laughs> I thought about it. <laughs> Yeah, and these workshops, for anyone who hasn't heard, uh, they're, they're free and open to the public, so anyone can come. Um, and the first half, I think, is, you know, reading from the book in question and some writing and some sharing. And then for the last 30 minutes, the author comes in and there's a Q&A. Yeah. So those sound really fun. That does sound fun. I'm definitely going to be there. I would love to see you there. This is the great thing about our weird virtual world is that, like... My mom can come to the workshop. I mean, she'll be trouble. She shouldn't. <laughs> she should. I've never met your mom, but I feel like I know her from talking to you, listening to your impressions, <laughs> and reading these short stories you've been working on, and your mother is heavily featured in the ones that I've read, and um, I feel like I know her. I would love to do a poetry workshop with her on Zoom. Oh, yeah. That is a dream. My mom is amazing. Both my parents are very fun, imaginative spicy people and I'm trying to get my mom to start writing and start writing down at least like kind of her memoirs because yeah. she's had really extraordinary life and a lot to say she totally should this is a great idea I'll get Evgenia Kitaiskaya in the mix <laughs> yes you by the way look very handsome as well thank you do you want to see my rose necklace again yes please it's enamel oh it's pretty I dressed up for you <laughs> Looks great. Your eyeliner looks incredible. Wait, on a scale from one to five, how munchkin are you? I would, I would put myself at a four or five. It depends on the day. That's fair. 
Do you think being in quarantine has pushed that number up? Absolutely. (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) Especially, you know, now that I don't have to like wear a blazer and Mm -hmm. stuff to work. I mean, you can be a munchkin in a blazer and you'll look great. Like Danny DeVito. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with us, Ty. You are a delight and... It is selfishly just such a treat to get to hang out with you on Zoom. Thank you so much. We'll do it again sometime. Yes, thank you. It's so beautiful to talk to you both about this book that is very dear to my heart. And thank you for treating it so thoughtfully. Thank you, Taya. 